Well, this morning, Jesus, the good shepherd, is continuing to care for his flock and his people in, in his post-resurrection appearances. Last week, he dealt with a doubter, with Thomas, and this week, we see him dealing with the disciples' failure. With that in mind, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat and dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 150 of them, three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we ask that you would bless this word, that you would use it to minister to our weary and guilty hearts. Lord, soften our hearts that we might see the, this beautiful picture of your grace, redemption, and forgiveness. We pray all in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's been 20 years since that infamous day at Wrigley Field. In a snap decision that would change his life forever, Cubs fan Steve Bartman 
would go down in history as the man who ruined the Cubs' chances at going to the 2003 World Series. Are there any Cubs fans in here? I'm sorry, you have to relive this. Well, let me, let me set the scene for you. It was game six of the 2003 Major League Baseball playoffs. It was the top of the eighth inning. There was, it was, uh, the Cubs were leading three to zero. They had one out. There was two outs remaining. It had been 58 years since the last time the Chicago Cubs went to the World Series, and now only two outs stood in their way. And that's when it happened. Florida Marlins batter, Luis Castillo, popped the ball off the tip of his bat. It went soaring towards the, the crowd. Left fielder Moises Alou tracked the ball perfectly. He timed his jump. He extended his glove in the air, waiting for the ball to hit his glove. And instead of hitting his glove, it hit a fan. A fan who you know now as already as Steve Bartman. Uh, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with baseball, you have to imagine Moises, one of the, the outfielders on the Cubs team, was running after the ball, and uh, the stadiums have a, a wall barrier that's there that's usually about head height, and it's typical for the outfielders to have to, to jump up and extend their arm over the wall to kind of try to catch the ball and to secure the out. Well, this time... Um, the Cubs uh, player was unable to do so because a Cubs fan who would have preferred that Moises caught the ball, uh, interfered with the ball, and the ball drops and hits the ground, and Moises stands there angry and dumbfounded at what he just saw. And so just to make things worse for Steve, uh, the Marlins would go on in the bottom of the eighth inning to score eight runs, winning game six, then game seven, and then going on to the World Series to beat the New York Yankees uh, that, that time. Now Bartman, following the game, would be seen led out of the stadium with a hoodie on, uh, escorted by police officers and security as he dodges beers and other objects uh, that are being thrown by angry Cubs fans. Uh, on TV, Angry broadcasters would criticize him for months and weeks following. In the newspapers, polls would reveal that thousands of people actually blamed him for the loss that day. Uh, and on top of it all, Steve himself was a devoted Cubs fan. He was personally devastated and demoralized and ashamed by his actions. You can actually, if you look up the video, you can kind of search 2003 uh, Steve Bartman, and you can actually see footage of him shortly after this incident. Uh, he's the only one sitting in the, in the stands. Uh, and he's kind of wiping tears from his eyes and just kind of, he's realized and grieved at what he's just done and what that meant uh, and intended. And so he is deeply distressed and due to this great stress and shame, he ends up disappearing from the public eye for over 10 years. It wouldn't be until after the Cubs won the 2016 World Series nearly 13 years later 
that, that uh, Bartman would be heard from again. And this is where the story gets great. Following the victory, Bartman would actually be publicly embraced by the Cubs organization with the presentation by the owner himself of the Cubs, of, with a presentation of a World Series championship ring as kind of a gesture of being restored and welcomed back into the Cubs fan community. And so Bartman uh, ends up seeing this as a, a beautiful picture to him of being welcomed back in, and he's overly grateful for the incident. Well, like Bartman, Peter in our passage also receives a very personal, a very public restoration after a very royal failure. But this restoration comes from the offended party himself, namely Jesus. So with that in mind, we're going to look here at verse 1 in our passage. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. So again, this is after Jesus has lived, he has died, and he has been raised from the dead, and he is continuing in his post-resurrection appearances. And uh, he is appearing to the disciples who we were told are at the Sea of Tiberias. Now that name probably doesn't sound familiar to us. Uh, it has a different name, which we are more familiar with, which is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, here they are, the disciples have returned back to the Sea of Galilee, which in a sense is kind of where it all started. This is where Jesus found the disciples. It's where the Jesus called the disciples originally. And here they are back in the place where it all started. Now we're not sure why they returned. Some have suggested that uh, there's kind of a negative aspect to this, that they're returning uh, to like kind of their old way of life. I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think it's more likely that what's happening is that the disciples are returning back to Galilee because Jesus had told them that he was going to go back to Galilee and that he was going to appear to them there. So here they are in Galilee awaiting the appearance of their risen Savior. And we're told that there's seven disciples. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, who is called the twin, who we read about last week, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, who we know as James and John, and two other unnamed disciples who were together. In verse 3, we're kind of told that Peter, who is kind of this leader among equals, the one who kind of usually makes the first step, he decides he's going to go fishing. And the other disciples decide that they're going to tag along as well. And then we pick up in uh, verse, the end of verse 3. They went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. All of a sudden things get strangely familiar. They have this kind of deja vu moment, if you will. I'm sure many of you are, have deja vu moments in your life. This moment would have triggered for me deja vu moments. Uh, many of you know I grew up in Florida in Jacksonville. I was surrounded by water, um, ocean, the, the intercoastal, and, and other uh, lakes and ponds. And uh, so it was my habit to go fishing with my father occasionally. He had a little John, aluminum John boat that had, you'll laugh, it had a little 9.8 horsepower Evinrude on it, uh, which uh, tops off at like about 10 miles an hour. Um, there was times where I thought I could walk faster than our boat was going. My dad's 
bigger outboard was out of commission, and so there was a number of years that we would go fishing in this thing, and my dad liked a particular spot out um, about nine miles away from the boat ramp called um, Pine Island, uh, and so 45 minutes, an hour later, um, after we got there, a lot of time to talk, um, uh, by the time we got there to actually fish, uh, uh, dad would take me to his spot, we would inevitably fish and fish and fish all day, probably get a sunburn, uh, we'd come back, the question would be asked, did you catch any fish, we would have to say no. Um, uh, this was particularly devastating for my dad because usually my dad would uh, go out to a spot, a fishing spot, and he'd catch some big black drum or a sheep head, right? And he'd come back with his pictures and he'd show it to me and he's like, I'm going to take you to the spot, Christopher, and I'm going to show you and we're going to catch it. And we'd go out there an hour later and, and, we'd and nothing. And so it would devastate my father. And then make matters worse, my stepmom, uh, now tell me this is not insulting, she would, uh, before we left, she would set out chicken in the, frozen chicken in the sink to thaw uh, because the pattern would become so predictable uh, over time. So needless to say, I learned to pond fish and fish without my dad, uh, and I've had better luck, you can ask Nate, um, with that, so which is good. Uh, but uh, here they are. The disciples have had an unsuccessful fishing trip. As they're heading back to the shore, they notice this unrecognizable figure on the shore. Uh, they're not sure. Uh, they can't make, make, make them out who it is. We don't know if it's just too dark because they've been fishing all night. And so we don't know if they can't see him because of that or, or what. But here they are. They see him. And he calls out from the shore and asks if they had caught anything. And ashamedly, like my father and I, they had to say no. They didn't catch anything. Um, uh, and you have to, I want to kind of just pause here just for a minute. You have to think about this failure, right? This is yet again another failure for Peter. Um, it's one thing for my dad and I to come back and not have anything uh, after a fishing trip. It's another thing to, go, to interview a, a Bassmaster, um, right? Someone on the Bassmaster show and ask them if, after a whole day of fishing if they caught anything and for them to say no, right? This is Peter's profession. This is what he did. This is what he dedicated his life to. And here he is, yet again, a failure. A failure uh, after already being a failure. So shamingly, they answer back no, and, uh, and Jesus turns to them and tells them, hey, cast in your net on the right side of your boat. I'm sure you'll find something. And when they toss in the net, and they begin to pull it in, that's when it happens, deja vu. All of a sudden, the net is overwhelmed with fish. We're actually told that there was... 153 of them. Someone had to count those, by the way. And then it dawns on John, the beloved disciple, that they had lived this almost exact scenario once before. Back in Luke 5, you have to picture this, Jesus had, uh, was on the shore. He was teaching to the masses, and the masses were getting too overwhelming him. So he sees Peter and the disciples on the boat. And he says, hey, can I, he asked to get on the boat and for them to push out to shore and to, so he could teach from the, from the boat. After he finishes teaching, uh, Peter and his disciples, the disciples who uh, just got done spending the entire night uh, fishing and not catching anything, Jesus tells them to drop the nets. Sound familiar? Uh, drop the nets. And here it is. They drop the nets. The, f the nets are overwhelmed with fish so much that the, the boats begin to kind of take on water and sink because the, it's so much. And then Peter, in that instant, 
the way he responds is that he, because of the fish, the amount of fish, he ends up falling at Jesus' feet, and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter knew that if Jesus knew what was underneath that boat, that he knew what was in his heart. And so here he is, overwhelmed by the person of Jesus, and he falls to his feet, overwhelmed uh, at this moment. Well, here in John 21, we have almost the identical scenario. But instead of shrinking back in shame and fear, Peter, after the recognition of John, ties his shirt around his waist He leaps into the water. He swims as fast as he can to Jesus who's waiting on the shore to meet him. And this is this beautiful moment in verse 7. When the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore saw Peter and said, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. It's this remarkable moment of just kind of abandon where he just kind of forgets everything and just jumps in. But this moment, this remarkable moment, as remarkable as it was, doesn't last very long because soon Peter would be confronted with his past. Let's look together at verses 8 through 14. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled in the net to shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So here they are. They, they, make, they catch the fish. The disciples are bringing the fish back in. Peter has reached the shore um, and... Uh, they are met with a charcoal fire, okay? I want to focus on that, the, those words for just a minute. Uh, and in one sense, this charcoal fire actually has uh, some very positive uh, connotations. Here, they just spent an entire night fishing, working hard, into the, uh, having a late night, no rest, tired. And here they are. They come onto the shore, and they are met with a delicious, bountiful breakfast, hot meal, ready to go. And here they are, they're encouraged by this meal, and, and it's not just with anyone. Like, meals at this time were a sign of intimate fellowship. And here they are, meeting and eating with not just anyone, but with the risen Lord. And they get to share this meal with him. Well, there's a flip side to this, this term as well, to this charcoal fire. Uh, in one sense, it, re, it, it represented something entirely different. It brought to mind a whole closet full of skeletons for Peter. Memories that he would have loved to forget. Memories that had tortured him since Jesus' arrest. Interestingly, the word for charcoal fire only occurs twice in the New Testament. Once in our passage here, and the other time, three chapters earlier, where Peter is described as warming his hands by the charcoal fire just before he denies Jesus three times. Here he is triggered with these, these memories of, of, of failure and sin and regret. Now, for Peter, he, has, you know, he gets a pretty bad rep in a lot of ways, and uh, he has many, many failures. And I'm sure if you were to ask him which one took the cake, he would say this one. 
this one took the cake. It was a source for him of great shame, embarrassment, and regret. Well, back in 2010, the former first lady, Laura Bush, uh, released a personal memoir in which she wrote for the first time about her devastating high school car accident that brought her decades of unspoken grief. It was only, she'd only had her, uh, she turned 17 only a few months earlier. Her and her friend Judy were in the car traveling uh, to a drive-in movie theater that night. She says she was driving on a road that um, was pitch black, um, pitch black, and uh, she was driving just a little below the speed limit, and she was approaching an almost always empty intersection. Uh, uh, she knew that this intersection was in her head. She knew that this intersection was coming, but she thought in, that it was going to be much further ahead. And before she knew it, all of a sudden, the intersection was upon her. And she saw the stop sign out of the corner of her eye, and it was too late to sal- slam the brakes. At that time, a car came through the intersection. She ended up T-boning the car. Thankfully, both her and her friend Judy were fine. They only suffered minor inter- injuries. But the person in the other car uh, died instantly. Uh, It wasn't until much later that she found out the identity of that victim. It was one of her uh, very close friends, someone who she describes as someone she talked to on a regular basis on the phone, someone who you could actually find in her family home videos from time to time. Uh, It was a peer, someone she went to school with, someone she knew very, very well, and his name was Mike Douglas. Reflecting on the incident in her book, she writes, in the aftermath, all I felt was guilty, very guilty. In fact, I still do. It is a guilt I will carry for the rest of my life, far more visible to me than the scar etched in the bump on my knee. Evidently, she... uh, acquired a scar from the injuries on, in the car accident, and it was for her a physical reminder of that horrible day and all that she's done. For her, it wasn't just the guilt of taking a, a close friend's life. It was the guilt and of all the rippling implications, all the people it impacted, all the people it touched. It was the fact that uh, how it impacted her closest friends and peers, it was the fact that how especially it impacted Mike's sister and Mike's parents. She would say later on as she had children that she would go on to really truly understand more and more what kind of grief Mike's parents experienced that day as she understood what it was like to lose a child. She said for her, even the guilt caused her to lose her faith for a period of time, for many, many years, she says. Well, Peter most certainly would have been familiar with this level of guilt, but even to, I think, in a greater degree. On that dreadful night back in John 18, just three chapters earlier, weeks earlier, Peter didn't just accidentally deny knowing one of his closest friends and masters. This wasn't just a failure. This was a sin to the utmost degree, a deep betrayal on the highest of levels. On that night, he willfully took a, didn't just deny the Lord, but he took an oath to the living God, denying that he knew Jesus not just once, not just twice, but three times. 
That night he turned his back on one whom he publicly claimed to love and follow. One whom he told that he was personally willing to, to, to suffer for, go to prison for, and even die for. On that night, after being questioned three times, one of which, by the way, was by a, a girl, a little girl, all his words and bold assertions seemed like nothing more than empty rhetoric. A wave of guilt and shame came over him. And as we're told in Luke's gospel, he locked eyes with the very one whom he betrayed, Jesus himself, after that moment. He broke down in tears. Every time a rooster would crow from that day forward, he would be reminded of the heinous sin and all-consuming guilt of that night. And it's in this sin and guilt that Jesus confronts him in our passage. And he does so not to hurt him, but to heal him. And so what begins as a subtle reminder with a charcoal fire, Jesus makes very explicit in the remaining verses of our passage. Look with, this at, look with me at verse 15 through 19. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Just as Peter had denied Jesus three times, then Peter now is being reinstated three times. In doing this, Jesus is highlighting this sin. He's highlighting, he's bringing to the forefront this deep betrayal that he, that Peter uh, committed. And he does so with a very pointed question. He says, do you love me more than these? At first glimpse, I, this seems like a very strange question, I think, to ask. Especially because I think that Jesus was actually asking this question with all the other disciples around and the these in that question were actually the disciples who were standing there. And so in a sense, he was asking Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And the reason why I think he's, this is the case is because of the words of Peter back in Matthew 26. Jesus had just told the disciples that they would all fall away from him. And Peter, in his boldness and presumption, speaks up and he says to Jesus, these words. He says, though they all, aka the other disciples standing right here, though they all fall away because of you, I, Peter, will never fall away. Jesus was asking a rather pointed and convicting question, a question that was highlighting the very extent of his guilt. Peter answers, Lord, yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus then asked the question a second time, and Peter replies the same as the first. And Jesus says, ten my sheep. And then finally, Jesus asked the question a third time, and this time, however, Peter can't handle it. He's overwhelmed with grief. Why? Because Peter knew exactly what Jesus was doing. 
Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, was now confessing him three times. And so he finally responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus responds a third time, feed my sheep. You see, it as if it wasn't enough for Jesus just to forgive Peter, he reinstates him as well. He calls him to, to his purposes. Jesus wanted the world to know that he could take a failure like Peter and he could use him for his good and perfect purposes. He could redeem even the worst of worst sins. And so if there's anything this story teaches us, it's this, and here's the, the money, is that there is no sin beyond the grace of God. There is no sin too vile or too heinous that can outmatch God's grace. I'm sure as we've sat here, many of us, different things have come to mind. Things that have probably brought deep shame to the forefront. Things that we would uh, love to forget. Things that we probably dream about at night. Things, uh, memories that we would just love to just remove away from our memories. Things that we did when we were young. Perhaps things we've done more recently. Things that no one else maybe knows about. Things that, have, that are just too shameful to tell. I don't have to make a list of examples. You know exactly what these things are. And what this passage wants us to know is that no matter how dark and no how bad you think they might be, these things are, what this passage tells us is that the blood of Jesus is more than enough. There is no sin too great. If you don't think that's true, if you're doubting that, and you say, well, you don't know my circumstances, Chris. Remember Paul. Paul, a persecutor of Christians, one who would drag Christians out of worship to kill them. Paul, the one who stood at Stephen's stoning and nodded approvingly at what they did. If someone like that isn't too far from the grace of God, from the mercy of God, then neither are we. So what can overcome the condemning crow? What can overcome the dreams that haunt us, the dreams that we just can't seem to shake? What can overcome the scars, the physical reminders of our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Just a little bit ago, we heard in our assurance of pardon, these words, it said, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance to the riches of God's grace. Not to the limited supply of God's grace or the smallness of God's grace, but the riches of God's grace for you. God's grace is bigger than our greatest sin and we can know this is true because God's grace is assured in a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that all of us who have failed in, in different ways, all of us who stand here sinners, guilty of not loving you as we should, not loving others as we ought, Lord, we thank you that there is no sin too heinous, too vile, no sin that's too far and outside of God's grace.
Lord, we help pray that we would rest in that truth today as we go from here, that we would rest in the fact that it's true, that you truly did die and forgive our sins, and yet we know that that's true because you, your son was raised. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.